Fred Rogers, a famous American TV personality, once said, anything that's human is mentionable, and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. Welcome to Lothar Conversations. I'm Ashwarya, hosting this session today, along with Ms. Ruchita Chandrasekhar, a licensed clinician presently working for a federally funded program in the United States. She is also a trauma therapist and a speaking writer at some platforms like The Wire, HuffPost, and The Print. Hi, Ruchita. We are glad to be speaking to you today. Hi, Ashwarya. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so let's get started with the interview. Hmm? To start with, let's talk a little bit about your background. Could you tell us what motivated you to pursue a full-time career or the field related to mental health? Sure. So I worked in advertising before this. I was a copywriter with an agency. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think as I saw people my age go through a lot of stressors and just some of my friends have mental health concerns, some of myself have mental health concerns, I realized, I, I, I at least noticed that we didn't have as many resources or even as much knowledge um, or any kind of understanding. There's a lot of, there was a lot of stigma in households uh, to be able to talk about it. But then my experience was just that, oh my God, there is no place to just go to, to understand, to know what is happening. Uh, because physical health is always um, treated so separately from mental health. So, so it was 2015. Um, and then it just, it's just like 23. I, I realized that's not something I wanted to do. So that's when I shifted to social work, um, where I worked with this organization called Kravna that strives mm-hmm. to end intergenerational prostitution in the red light areas of Bombay. So I used to work there as a social worker and a research assistant for about six months to just understand if trauma work is something I was one built for, do uh, I enjoy mm-hmm. doing, and uh, what really was my role in like working with these populations, um, right? Who These severely traumatized populations. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I think I learned a lot about systems. I learned a lot about... Um, building communities uh, with healthcare and things like that. It was, it was a very intersectional experience for me. And by then is when I applied for my master's, for my graduate school. So that is when I then transitioned to the US once I got my admission. And then got trained, got licensed, have been practicing since. That's, that's great to know. I think what I really like about your journey is how you were able to map each step because, you know, it, it, it's more like this connecting the dots style where you were able to reason out why you wanted to get into the domain all through your personal experiences as well as the experiences that shaped you around. So that's that's really interesting to know the part. One thing to also just highlight is that because I was switching careers mm-hmm. and how that is not necessarily normal in a lot of Indian households to be allowed mm-hmm. to do. It also felt like I had to prove something to my parents (laughs) that this is something that would make sense, which is unfortunately also going to stress a lot of young folks go through because they feel like they have to be stuck to one thing that they have to do and they cannot transition to something else. So a lot of that also possibly just came from that. (laughs) Thank you. I think you set an example by this way. I mean, not only you know just being a clinician, I think you set an example from the career path that you have taken and the story behind the whole uh, career path. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that, that's something uh, that motivates others around to probably look into you as an example. Mm-hmm. So counseling psychologists, that's like, you mm-hmm. know, very interesting. So what does mm-hmm. a day in the life of a clinician look like? Oh, 
So I've, I've had like multiple ways in which this has functioned. I work at a residential facility now. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm seeing folks all day. But okay. I've also had um, places where I have worked at where people have set appointments and they come in. So you, it's, it's just like that. Depending on the setting that you work in, you, you possibly have like a caseload that you set for the week. You see mm-hmm. a number of folks in a day. You have your case notes to finish. You have your consultation meetings to do. So it's usually pretty packed. A lot of times because of how um, underfunded mental health can be, um, even in parts of the U.S., um, mm-hmm. it, it, you're just doing back-to-back sessions often, which tend to take a toll on you. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. It's just packed. And what I think what is important to highlight is that the role is so different from anything else that you do um, in the corporate world, right? Because you are having interpersonal interactions about people's pain, about people's traumas, mm-hmm. about people's symptoms as you are assessing and as you are being a source of support and treating them. So it's a lot of emotional labor that goes into each hour. So mm-hmm. that, that is what a usual day looks like. So. That's nice. So I think a majority of your work involves or you know, rather revolves around meeting people and getting to know them and um, making an impact in their lives in a subtle way. That's, that's nice to know. Uh, there are many stereotypes about what therapy looks like. Actually, mm-hmm. how accurate is it? And what's really involved in a therapy session? So the one thing that it isn't is that uh, it's, it's not like talking to a friend. Often mm-hmm. that is, uh, it, it gets misconstrued for yes, yes. if you have a friend, why do you need a therapist? Um, it is, so it's talking is a modality that is used, but that is not the only modality firstly to therapy. Um, mm-hmm. You have stuff like EMDR, you have group, yeah, you have yes. other uh, features to talk therapy mm-hmm. and you have other um, things that also get added to it to make it a treatment process firstly. I think it's important to acknowledge that therapy is, um, is a treatment science and it is, it is not like talking to your friend, it's not like talking to your mom, it's, it's, simil- it's not similar to those aspects. The similar features of you talking to people in your life and you talking to a therapist is that you should feel supported, um, which, is, should, which should be features of most interpersonal relationships in your life, that you feel supported, you feel cared for, um, you feel important, you feel validated. What you feel from both of those relationships can be similar, but the the methods and means with which they're conducted is very different. Therapists are not giving you advice. They're literally trained uh, with how questions have to be asked to you, with like open-ended and close-ended questions, with how we rephrase. Um, therapists are trained to, you know, like, not go into all of it, like be able to strategically decide where someone might be at, to unpack something, to pack it up again before a session is done. It is a very meticulous form of uh, treatment that is done. Um, talking is is a modality that is used because um, it's it's not like like when you go to see your general physician and they just like have a stethoscope to you and are able to check your eyes and be able to do that. That is their modality. Yes. Yes. Modality for therapy is you talk, you're able to communicate. It is more reliant on you as a human being, as a patient, to be able to deliver what is bothering you and then to be able to receive, assess and strategize what might be helpful to you. It is extremely intimate. Um, 
because there are things you you can sometimes like share with your therapist that you might not share with anybody at all. Confidentiality mm-hmm. is essential, which is again not something that interpersonal relationships in your life might guarantee, but a therapist-patient relationship should guarantee that. I know that doesn't happen sometimes; it doesn't make it okay. So there are a lot interpersonal relationships in outside of therapy are. Um, which I think are stereotypes. I guess I just wanted to uh, address. Secondly, it is something that will take time because you're literally working through parts of your life. You're understanding the ways in which you have been conditioned. So it is. It is an intimate process that takes time for you to get by. Totally. I think those are two valid points that you stated. I think everybody needs to understand that. Uh, therapy is no longer a taboo, or it's no longer a really uh, a simple thing that you can actually do with any person you meet, or rather any friend or a family member. And that point about uh, getting to know what really goes into each other's minds, and a therapist has uh, the, all the tools and all the abilities to bring that out of people's thoughts. That point is really valid, and I think uh, people would now understand more because it's coming. Uh, right from the mental health clinician who is actually practicing it. So I think now people would really get to understand why it is important to actually consider therapy as uh, their everyday activity. You know. So mm-hmm. thanks mm-hmm. so much for shedding some light on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So moving on, uh, not just a clinician, but you're also a published writer and a columnist. How effective mm-hmm. a tool is the pen in mental health, and what inspired you to take it up? uh i think it's effective in creating conversations um because mm-hmm. i think i specifically write for india and i write with indian publications mm-hmm. i also try to push it more in india because my hope is to destigmatize uh, mental health in south asian communities which is why i push it more and like i treat that as my audience whenever i put anything out the, the way i started doing this is through twitter threads that i would do yes. um, and the one thing that i noticed was people started talking to each other uh, more than what they were asking me so mm-hmm. it became like this this community that they were building where they're like oh i've been through this or oh i this has helped me mm-hmm. now you also have to recognize that systemically india doesn't have as many resources right now when it comes to mental health that are accessible that is still extremely expensive it yes. is not something you get in all the cities and all the villages and all the communities and that's i mean we have an extremely high suicide rate we have a lot of mental health concerns that you see across age groups and it's 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 an untreated population so a lot of times people tend to turn to their friends and family for some kind of support so what i noticed under these threads that i used to do was they like strangers started turning to each other being like my family doesn't understand but like okay you saying this doesn't make me feel alone so it started mm-hmm. developing more conversation and i went beyond writing like with symptoms and the panic attacks and everything also with um environments that would trigger you like emotional abuse in south asian households things like that that i think get very normalized because of culture um and can trigger a lot of symptoms and uh, no one talks about it because it's a shame no for you to talk about anything totally in, yeah uh, south asian cultures so i noticed that that is something that was picking up more um and then i started doing long form pieces on that front 
also because um i think there is value in someone from a field writing about um the field like you would rely more on a doctor telling you about um symptoms for migraines and like uh, telling you what to do for a migraine or like uh, providing more education on the yes. on migraines so as a mental health clinician then i start feeling like my responsibility to provide what we call psychoeducation so if you turn to webmd and you google something maybe there's going to be a part that brings up something i'm saying that that might provide some kind of insight um that might just be worthy in you showing it to someone saying hey this is someone who treats people and they're saying this is happening so maybe there is it is valid just- there is more credibility around it so I exactly think- which i unfortunately um uh, didn't see a lot with like a lot of times i would see these panels on news channels um on like mental health day and this that and everything and people are literally capitalizing on causes at this point and there are comedians on this panel but you don't see one psychologist you don't see one psychiatrist you don't mm-hmm. see one person who is uh, actually working with communities actually working with folks and um is able to again to be a credible resource like why are comedians on this panel why are social media influencers here because then what happens is your sources of information become people who are literally capitalizing on these causes and they are not the most credible sources of information yes there is validity in knowing that all these actors and act- actresses have anxiety but what beyond that how do you understand your anxiety now how do you recognize that this is something that is happening to you and you need to do something about it none of these panels and none of, none of these mainstream areas are telling you that necessarily so i think that is why i notice that the stigmatization yes there is benefit in exposure like that and it was breaking down a little but mm-hmm. there has to be actionable change like people have to know that they have strengths that they have things that they can do that they can try that they can talk about um to be able to help themselves so i think that is what became my driving force and which is what i still like to treat it as so whether or not i publish more with these um errors i still try to do those twitter threads um mm-hmm. i still like do a poll every now and then asking people what do they want to learn about um so it's not just like me throwing jargon at them i'm just like okay like like someone once told me i want to know how to help a friend with going through uh, things like that so i was like okay that makes sense let's do that so i also often just use twitter as a research tool um to understand what people are looking for what are, what do mm-hmm. they want to learn about what are they trying to understand and then just build it accordingly so it, it it's important that it helps them it doesn't necessarily help me um, yeah it, yeah yeah i i absolutely love the whole motive behind uh, you know the entire work that you're doing uh, because i i this particular point about building a community i think that is where the whole strength of social media or beat any writing platform is people themselves come in and then they they use it as a tool to express their ideas and thoughts and the reason that you said sometimes people are not supportive sometimes family friends they are supportive but people are quite vulnerable and that's totally okay they use these mediums as tools or as platforms mm-hmm. to express mm-hmm. their thoughts and i think uh, that's a, that's a very very valid uh, point that you mentioned and yeah so according to you um, how much of a connect do mental sexual and physical health have uh, when trauma affects one do you think all the others get impacted as well 
Oh, definitely. Absolutely. They're all interconnected. Health is very intersectional. And unfortunately, uh, we need more conversation around that. Like mm-hmm. something as simple as, um, like if you have persistent anxiety and your cortisol levels keep fluctuating that much with your brain getting overactive that many times, it can affect your immunity, which can then start affecting your uh, physical health, which can then start making you weak. It's in, it's, it's in the smallest of ways. Like why is it that when you look at middle-aged uh, fathers, mm-hmm. everyone has blood pressure. And everyone, they're told that, oh, stress is a cause for this. Where does stress come from? That is your mental health. Stress yeah. is a natural bodily response that, unfortunately, when people are not trained to manage, it results in blood pressure. It results in diabetes. Like, look at so many of these physical health diagnoses and how many of them have stress as a major cause. And it is extremely stupid to tell people don't get stressed because when has that worked like when you tell me in terms of monastery don't get stressed has your yeah. stress just magically vanished no because stress is a natural bodily response to something we mm-hmm. have to learn to be able to have tools that helps us manage our stress um because it's a response like you can't control a sneeze you will sneeze when you have to sneeze but you will learn to manage a cold so it's in things like that um so like i said when like when you, i'm glad you brought up trauma because trauma has a tendency to have debilitating effects on not only your mental health, your physical health, and your sexual health. It, they, they all go together depending on the type of trauma you've had, the age at which you've experienced it, uh, the time in your lifespan that it has not gotten attention and not gotten treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how much of that have you internalized? And how much of that has influenced the way you live your life, which then gets attached to your lifestyle. Like a lot of times, say, for example, it's a very oversimplified example. Sexual trauma um, can lead and, and like, say, childhood sexual trauma, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, has, that a child has no awareness of, firstly, of, like, what is good touch, bad touch, like, to even understand that what yes, they're getting yes. traumatized and the powerlessness attached to that. Now, you have not said anything to anybody for years. So this is just an open wound that has influenced the way you grew up and started mm-hmm. living your life. And then as you grow up, you start having more interpersonal relationships, which is when you start having sexual relations as well, possibly. And the nature of how you conduct yourself in those can get influenced. The way you conduct yourself in relationships, the way... Uh, you you treat yourself as a human being in relationships, it gets very relational after a point because human beings are social beings. And then it also, because this has been an open, untreated wound for so long, can start affecting your physical well-being as well, how you treat your body, how you, you have understood messages about that, um, how you've lo- you can lose sensation in parts of your body because of uh, sexual trauma. Totally. Uh, now I see like a complete picture how each of these realms are influencing each other. You don't have to uh, have a checklist and say, hey, I've done these five things and still I don't find my mental health to improve. It's it's not a factor of taking the points and seeing where you are, but it's, it's about acknowledgement. It's about acceptance. And it is to ensure that you are okay with the things that, that you're currently going through. So thanks for that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the telling so far, what has been the most common type of mental health issues reported in your patients? Do you see any common pattern in any specific age groups? Uh, 
so a lot of times anxiety and depression can be um diagnosis but a lot of times there's symptoms as well um because those i think specifically anxiety is a very common body response that will happen because the human brain is designed to protect you so the minute it realizes that something's going to hit the fan even if it assumes that even if there's no danger anyway and it is assumed and it becomes this like what we call irrational uh thoughts that come in and say like no i have to be afraid of this you will have anxiety so a lot of times anxiety in those aspects can be a part it can be its own diagnosis but mm-hmm. often it will also be um like a symptom to something else so mm-hmm. i will often see features of anxiety of like mood symptoms that's how i would put it instead of just putting it as anxiety and depression mm-hmm. um every time i assess folks i always uh, ask them um how has your sleep been how has your appetite been how has your mood been do you feel tired um and often that will paint a picture of like mm-hmm. how yes, long yes. and everything so the presentations right of things it can't like just be like the features of every diagnosis are going to be different like i always tell you no um, yeah. but the mood symptoms is something you you might be able to catch um, wow. and even those mood symptoms might look very different because mm-hmm. sometimes people's brains are so so like oh the human brain is so fascinating like the resiliency of people would be so high that sometimes even the mood will not be able to tell you anything but their sleep patterns might their appetite might tell you something mm-hmm. things like am i able to concentrate on things or not can i focus on things or not like have i lost interest in things so you look for very um, specific features on that front and you also look for functioning so i that's the way i am able to assess so it's not like that like with younger folks you know of course see like more more features of anxiety that come up okay. but a lot of that can also just be appropriate anxiety because you're afraid of what you're going to do with your life in this world and the whole everyone in your life is telling you that you have to excel tomorrow and that's going to give you anxiety so there's also like forms of appropriate presentations according to your developmental stage and age and then like other forms that is like you seem too calm or like too regulated and is there mm-hmm. something to catch here because you're possibly too tired to care <laughs> so you can't it, it's always individualized it's always individualized but um, culture plays a huge role as well mm-hmm. in people's presentations um but what i've noticed across the board is that people's environments tend to influence their symptoms highly which okay. then goes to inform their diagnosis so i okay. i wouldn't necessarily say and that could also be because i've worked with very diverse communities i work with undocumented immigrant minors who are seeking refugee status now which is very different from yes. an urban population or something mm-hmm. like that right but yeah. um, those features just like people's environments affecting their daily functioning is big that i see okay. Yeah so the way i see it is you look for a few common indicators and try to map yes. a whole journey yes. and i can as you said experiences culture and you know mm, environment yeah. all of these are subsidiary uh, factors that play a role the larger goal of lone pack is also to work towards helping suicidal individuals so have you dealt with such individuals with suicidal tendencies earlier what would be the right kind of approach to help them 
I've dealt with a lot of, uh, I've worked with a lot of uh, suicidal folks, some with active suicidal ideation, passive suicidal ideation, active self-harm uh, tendencies and everything. Uh, how do I put this? What what I've noticed, and I think this is something I will first address to the larger community, because at some point in time, it's possible people are going to come across someone who has suicidal tendencies. Yes. The fact that they're informing you of their suicidal tendencies itself is a big sign that they mm-hmm. possibly want help. Mm-hmm. And they're not... Uh, that they may or may not do something in the next moment but it is a good sign if someone is talking to you about i have thoughts of ending my life or i i tried this yesterday or something like that to treat it as as something as as, as something they're going through and allowing them that space to express themselves why are you feeling that way how can i help you instead of like i think often people jump to advice uh, which is dangerous because if you're going to start telling them how they should live their life, then you're also questioning the way they already live their life, thereby reinforcing this that, oh, I, I don't want to live my life anyway, so I should die. So it's it's very important to come from a strength-based perspective and just allowing that space of like, okay, everyone's going to die anyway. What, what, what makes you want to die right now? How can I help you? Like... What is it that you need? I'm sorry you feel this way. Like, do you want to, do you trust yourself to be around yourself for a while? I care about you. I love you. Come from a strength-based perspective like that because I think one of the stupidest things people assume about suicide is that it's an act of cowardice. No, it is an act of exhaustion. There is nothing cowardly about attempting suicide or like doing anything like that. It is a terrifying thing to go through. And they go through with it. So to know that they come from a place of exhaustion, like if that has become your last resort, that man, nothing is helping me anymore. Nothing is working anymore. Like you have reached your, your like peak of exhaustion. You're done. So I think just, just acknowledging it like that, like that is their crisis and allowing them to just tell you what is happening instead of you acting like this expert on uh, suicide and things like that is important. Yes. So uh, in, in a way, it is approaching it in a more practical manner and trying to be non-judgmental and trying to say that you're there for the person to listen to the person. Uh, and it's a good thing that the person chose the one to actually speak to and be uh, open about their thoughts. So that was a very good uh, uh, statement that you had uh, told. And I'm sure that for the people who would listen I think now they understand how to deal with somebody who tries to come to them and speak about uh, insecurities or suicidal thoughts or any mental health issues from now on. Yeah, and I think more importantly, it is empathy. I think it's, totally. it's horrifying yeah. that people stigmatize suicide only with attention. Yes, there are some folks who do it, but that comes from like deeper mental health concerns, firstly. Mm-hmm. But to assume that everyone is just doing this for attention, like there are other ways to get attention. People don't want to be shamed to get attention. Like everyone's not into that kind of masochism, which is stupid. To just come from a place of empathy that, oh my God, my loved one, this person who's talking to me is so exhausted. And more importantly, to also acknowledge your boundaries. But to put them forth in a helpful, kind manner. To be like, hey... It looks like you are going through a lot right now. And I am sorry. This is this is really bad. But 
I don't think I am equipped to help you. You are worthy of help. You are worthy of support in a way that I don't think I am qualified in this moment to help you. Yes. But if you're going to assert those boundaries to communicate that, don't abandon them. Just let them know that I think I think it. I cannot provide this for you, and it would be better to just let's let's work together on what is another channel for you to get it from. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for putting it that way, Ruchita. I think empathy is a powerful tool that all of us need to develop. You cannot have like five textbook techniques to avoid anxiety or anything, because everyone's anxiety looks different. Everyone's depression yeah. looks different. Everyone's bipolar disorder tendencies looks different. Everyone's schizophrenia looks different. Everything looks. Everyone's grief looks different. Everything. Like no two brains are the same. Which so is true. why I think yeah. it is important to just. Just like maybe spend time, like ten minutes in a day. I mean, those are really golden words. I see self-aware is over self-care because you need mm-hmm. to understand yourself better first to to see what really is more caring and nurturing for you. And as you said, no two persons yeah. are so uh, understanding. Each of us have our own cycles, our own uh, ways to uh, indulge in, our own ways to develop. is the first mm-hmm. and the foremost thing that we need to do. Yeah, and you are an expert on yourself. Nobody is an expert on you. You so, are the only expert on yourself. <laughs> so you know. That's it. Going yeah. by that. So, yeah. People can be there to support you. Can be there to help you find and discover your interests, your passion. But again, in the end, I think you should be there for yourself. You are your own master, so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much, Nishita. It was wonderful to hear your experiences in dealing with mental health, victims, the couple of uh, anecdotes that you shared, and I'm sure listeners will pick up some ways to both practice and promote mental well-being. Mm-hmm. So I hope so. <laughs> Today's episode was a clear example of how clinicians like Ruchita, together with mental health organizations like Known Park, can work together towards shattering the stigma around mental health issues. Thanks for listening to our session. To hear more such positive discussions, keep tabs on the next episode of Known Park Conversations. Until then, see you all.